This message was recorded during a conference for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. And uh, I'd like to again ask you, if you would, to pray with me for the preaching of God's Word. Lord, thank you for fun and laughter and, Lord, even a world that you created where <laughs> things like balloons work and we can laugh at them. And Lord, we're, we're grateful for the gift of many joys in this world that you've created. We're grateful to have been created by you in this world. And Lord, as we continue to talk about our identity that you've given us, Lord, we pray that you would illuminate and empower your word to transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, turn back in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis 1. Genesis 1. If you were paying attention last night, and I'm sure you were because you guys are used to faithful exegetical preaching, and as I said, that wasn't quite the way we were doing that message last night, more general observations, but you probably noticed that there's a pretty major section of those verses I read that I didn't cover at all. One of the advantages of the retreat is we can take a whole message to cover one thing that we didn't cover last night. Now, you may or may not have noticed the part I didn't cover, but look down at your Bibles at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and I want to notice something with you at the very end. It's a very important part of identity. Actually, it's so important that God expands on it in chapter 2 and gives an extension extended commentary on what exactly he meant in this one verse. See if you can find the part that I didn't talk about. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 27, it says, So God created man, he covered that in his own image, in the image of God he created him, and here's the part I didn't cover. Male and female, he created them. Mike and I both thought it would be a good idea to address this Topic, the topic of, of gender, that's the formal word, because when we ask the question, who am I, one of the ways Genesis answers that question is you are a young man or you are a young woman. You are a man or a woman. That's part of what it means to have how we think about ourselves line up with how God thinks about us. And I don't think there is an aspect of biblical identity, God-given identity, that is more under assault in our culture in the West today than that identity. I, I try to picture something again, if you would. Imagine that you spend your life, and probably in your lifetime, you will spend your entire life with this being the case. Imagine you spend your life with someone with a big bullhorn, like they use at a youth camp like this, right next to your ear shouting at you something over and over and over again, and the thing they're shouting would be this. What you feel is what is real. What you feel, and they do it over, I mean, annoyingly so, so, so loud that you just begin to sort of tune them out or forget about them, but they continue to shout. What you feel is what is real. And they shout that more about the topic of being a boy and a girl than anything else. What you feel about being a boy, what you feel about being a girl, is what is real. What you feel is what is real. Imagine Satan, if I could put it that way, with a bullhorn. All day, 
every day in a thousand different ways, shouting that into you. What you feel about being a man, about being a woman, is what is real over and over and over and over again. And because that's true, I think, especially right now and in your generation, we, in a particular way, need God's word, which speaks very clearly on this topic. Male and female, he created them. So important did God think that part of our identity is that he expanded on it, as I said, in chapter 2. So turn over in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We're just going to read through this. And again, I'm just going to make observations. I'm not going to preach through this the way we would on a Sunday morning. But I think very helpful observations about the implications of what this part of our identity means. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. God has placed Adam in the garden that he made, this glorious garden with the responsibility to work it and keep it, cultivate it on God's behalf. And then for the first time in these glorious two chapters, we hear something very surprising that that God says. He says in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, whenever God expands on something, repeats something, we are very wise to pay close attention. That's true throughout the Bible. And in this case, God takes a single phrase, male and female, he created them, and he decided to devote an entire chapter on explaining in detail how that went. There's kind of a drama in Genesis 2. Here's Adam, this creation, this lump of clay that's been made alive by God, placed in this beautiful garden with all these animals and everything. And, and, And God places him there and he kind of plays out this drama. Rather than just creating Eve at the beginning, he creates a, a God written drama where first he he brings all the animals to Adam. And one by one, Adam can tell that they they are not made in the image of God. They're not like me. They're not a suitable helper to me. And gradually, one by one, you can almost feel throughout the day, Adam getting lonelier and lonelier as the day progresses. And then finally, God unveils, we could even put it this way, the the pinnacle of his creativity, where he causes Adam to go to sleep, he removes a rib, and he turns that into Eve, And then he brings her to the man. There's a sense of like the final act of a play or a great drama that's been unfolding. 
And when she comes in, it's like, yes, this is God's perfect plan. Here's someone that is like Adam, but enough not like Adam, where, where there's a, a complementary way they relate to each other. She's in the image of God, but she's a little different than Adam. She has different abilities and capacities and even a role. She's equal in worth and dignity and and glory and even has a a pride of place in the sense of being the celebrated conclusion of God's creation. And and, and yet she's she's different than Adam in in his role as the head of this world and this line of humanity. And and it's it's like God says, I I can't just give you the one line. I, I have to play out this drama. Look at Adam. Look how lonely he looks. Look how sad it would be if he was always alone, surrounded by, by mindless animals without souls. And now, here comes this woman I've made. From God's perspective, this is like a climactic, creative, glorious moment. Look, look what I've made. The man and the woman. And as we, if you turn back to Genesis 1, what God says at the end of all of this, he says, it is very good. It is very good in verse 31 of chapter 1. So that that apparently concluded when Eve was brought to Adam, God said, now it is very good. It is very good, God said. Now this gets to the topic of gender as a major part of our identity. God made humankind men and women. God made them that way, and he made them very good. Now, I want to make a number of observations. There's a lot of them, but they're all kind of simple, and they build on each other, okay? So we'll just walk through a number of observations, because I I basically want to shout back. On, On your behalf, I want to shout back at that megaphone. Satan's megaphone in our culture, in your generation, probably for the rest of your life, is shouting this in a particular way. What you feel about gender is what is real. And I want to say, no, it's not. Not unless it lines up with what God says. And I have no problem in rousing a young generation of rebels against Satan. Rebels against that megaphone that can shout back, no, it's not. And you know why? Because this is what God says I am. And what God says about me is what is real. What God says about me is that line that cemented in that takes me all the way on his track of life. And I'm lining up my identity with what he says. No, it's not. What I feel and what other people feel, it it is not necessarily real unless it lines up with God. Here's a number of observations. They they seem plain to me if you just read this passage, but man, they are contradicted in our world today. First of all, number one, God designed our bodies on purpose. Now, if that's not the most obvious observation you could make about Genesis 1 and 2, God designed our bodies on purpose. God, the God who made the planets and wind is under no obligation to make these human souls have bodies. You know, God doesn't have a body as a spirit being. He has no body. So the fact that we have bodies was God's idea. It wasn't accidental. He didn't have to do that. God doesn't have to do anything. He decided we would have physical form, bodies. God designed our bodies on on purpose. Von Roberts uh, says it this way. As God's creatures, we are not, listen to this, we are not simply souls trapped in human bodies. He made us as physical beings. We are embodied creatures. In, In other words, the real you, the you that is you, is a soul 
in a body. It's not the real you that happens to be in a body. Your body is you. So if I can put it this way, if, if you get punched in the nose, it wasn't that your nose was punched, but you were unharmed. No, you were punched. You, your body is you. If you smack someone across the face, it's not that your hand smacked them, but you were an innocent bystander. No, you smacked them in the face. God made us with bodies on purpose, and our bodies are not the shells we live within. Our bodies are us. They're not all of us. Now, now I think you can begin to tell, isn't that kind of different from what that megaphone is shouting? It shouts right now, the real you is inside in what you feel. It's emotional, and your body is kind of something you had to be born into. They treat bodies almost like the hospital you were born in. Well, you were born in a hospital, but that's not you. You're in this body, but that's not you. Not according to Genesis 1. God made us with bodies on purpose. God didn't have to make us with bodies. He's no obligation to make. He could have made us spirits without bodies, but no. He made us with bodies on purpose. Observation number two. God's design of our bodies is good. God's design of our bodies is good. When God, remember, we're thinking about that railroad track. That's always right because God says it. When God looked down at Adam and he looked down at Eve, he saw the bodies he had made. And you know what he said? Very good. Very good. God celebrating before all creation, that is a good piece of Play-Doh. <laughs> that is good. That is good. That is very good. And he's observing not just the fact that they exist as souls, but the very specific design of their bodies. Actually, the distinction in their bodies was part of the very good that he was celebrating after he brought Eve to Adam. Her difference from him, it wasn't accidental. God did that on purpose. God is a master craftsman. He built her exactly the way he wanted her to be. He built Adam exactly the way he wanted him to be. There was no mistake. No, oh, well, I, as I look at it now, it's different. No, no, he built them exactly the way he wanted them to be. Our design, God's design of our bodies is good. Von Roberts again says this, because God created everything, the body and the whole material world is very, very good. Our bodies are an essential part of our true selves. So what, listen to this, listen to this. What I feel about myself can never be the whole picture because God made us embodied souls. Oh, please print that on your minds. God made you an embodied soul. God made you an embodied soul. God made you with the body you have. God made you with the body you have. Our bodies, listen, are essential in determining and revealing who we truly are. Very important point. Our bodies are essential in determining who we truly are. Our bodies were designed by on purpose. God's design of our bodies is good. Observation number three. God's design of our bodies, listen, reveals our gender identity. God's design of our bodies reveal our gender identity. Here in Genesis 1 and 2 and throughout Scripture, the overwhelming assumption 
is that it is clear at birth whether a human is a boy or a girl. And that that clarity is assumed by God so that if someone contradicts that in some evil way, they are defying what God has made clear. Have you ever had the, the temptation that you know you do as a kid of, of your parents or as, you know, on a team or something, when you know that what was supposed to happen was very, very, very clear, and you know that it was clear, and they know that you know that it was clear, but you didn't do that thing anyway? And then you're like, well, I didn't know. But really, you know that you know, and you know that they know that you know. It's one of those moments, and you still argue. Yeah, but I didn't know. I know, I know, and you know that I know that I know, but I I didn't know. We are argumentative even when it's very, very clear. Our bodies were meant to be God saying, boy, girl, how much clearer can I be? Boy. Girl, God's design of our bodies reveal our gender identity. Listen, listen, very important you get this. When Eve came to Adam, he didn't have to ask, how do you feel about what gender you are? When she looked at Adam, she didn't say, "Uh, before we go further, how do you feel about what gender you are. Now, the culture says that's exactly what they had to ask. Actually, how dare Adam, if you can imagine if there was Twitter in the garden, God forbid. (laughs) If there was Twitter in the garden, it would have blown up when Adam said, this at last is woman. Whoa, 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 time out. Let's let her decide, Eve. Go sit under a tree and feel for a while and come back and tell us how you feel. Whoa, Adam, back up. And actually, why don't you ask yourself, what are you? And the way you ask is go inside yourself and think, how do I feel? Now, I'm not not meaning to make light of this. This is diabolical rebellion against God. It's not ultimately lighthearted in the world. It's sometimes lighthearted in the jokes on Twitter, but there is an enemy behind it that is not lighthearted at all. He says again and again and again this horrific lie that what you feel defines who you are when the Bible says what God says is real is who you are. And what the Bible's assumption is, and this ought to shape, therefore, our thinking, is that... God's design of our bodies reveals our gender identity. So that Eve was a woman clearly and therefore ought to think of herself as a woman. That to line up with that thinking is as much submitting to God as not eating that tree would have been. God's design of our bodies reveals our gender identity. There is no sense in scripture at all that this is a journey to be explored. This is a possibility that's a spectrum. There is no sense of that. Even God's moral law is based on the assumption that it is clear who is a man and who is a woman. And that that person can know that absolutely. Their feelings, and it may be the case, their feelings may not feel that way. And that is true for some people where our feelings, we live in a broken world. We feel all kinds of things that are a result of that brokenness. 
that that's not weird or unusual or that this person has kind of a strange set of feelings. We all feel things that are out of line with what God says is true about us. That, that's true of every single one of us. We shouldn't be self-righteous because this person has a feeling that is out of line with God's word in a way that we don't. We have feelings that are outside of line with God's word. That, that's not weird or unusual. That's part of being in a fallen world. And by the way, they and we are being shouted out all the time in various ways that would tempt us. What you feel is what is real. So no wonder they're tempted to go in that direction. What I'm talking about is what is real is that our bodies reveal our gender identity as it is clear with Eve. This is a woman. This is a woman. She's like me, but she's unlike me. Andrew Walker says it this way. A person with male anatomy, that means a male body, is reflecting physically the fact that they are created a man. Remember, made by God. A person with female anatomy is reflecting that she is a woman. Maleness isn't only anatomy, but anatomy shows that there is maleness. And femaleness isn't only anatomy, but anatomy shows that there is femaleness. Men and women are more than just their anatomy, but but they are not less. They are not less. Our anatomy tells us the gender we are. Listen to this. Our bodies... Do not lie to us. The way God made our bodies is God talking. And you can read in the New Testament various passages where God makes it clear there there are things that are evident. They're, they're, They're seen. They're observable. God has been clear. God hasn't lied to us in the way he made us. If we believe that, we might as well toss the whole Bible out the window. God has not lied to you in how he made your body. He hasn't lied to any person in how he made their body. He hasn't lied to them. He has told them the truth. Their feelings might lie to them because our souls were corrupted by sin. But when our souls, corrupted by sin, give us false feelings, those feelings must be brought into submission to God's truth. All right, observation number four. To reject our created gender identity is sin. To reject our created, created, given, objective, decided on by God, to reject our created gender identity is sin. Now, we we see this in other parts of life more clearly, but because of that big megaphone that Satan's holding next to our ear all day long, we sometimes don't see this with gender. We, we would see the idea clearly that if we, we rejected our, let's say, our species identity, someone who said, I, I know I look like a man, but actually I'm a poodle. Actually, I feel like a poodle, and therefore I am a poodle. People would be like, oh, this is concerning. We need to help you. We, we get that. I, I know I look like a man, but actually I'm a tree. I feel leafy, and therefore I'm a tree, right? We laugh because you know why? Because that megaphone, it's not dealing with people becoming trees. And so it doesn't strike us as particularly alarming. But if I say to you, I feel like a woman, even though I look like a man, all of a sudden our Twitter alarms go off. But in God's word, it's just as clear. To reject, it's not just irrelevant, 
It's not just indifferent. It's not just some person's personal way to live. Here's one of the reasons we have to start with God as creator. Because in our culture, sin is defined as harming someone else. That is not how the Bible starts when it talks about sin. Sin in the Bible is primarily about God. And you could sin in private without ever seeing another person. That's not the way the culture thinks. They think, well, whatever you do in private is irrelevant. Sin is what you do towards others. No, no. The Bible says whether you're in public or private, sin is defying God or loving anything more than God. Make that your definition of sin. Defying God or loving anything more than God. And in this case, it is defying the way God made us. To reject our created gender identity is sin. As sinful as it would be, without reason to chop off an arm or to kill oneself or, so to speak, to malign the way God made us as humans by putting duct tape over your mouth and not letting yourself speak the rest of your life. That's not a personal choice. That's sin. That's rejecting that God made you, he owns you, he made you to be a particular thing. And you don't have the choice to decide not to be that thing without sinning. Now in this world in which we do have a will and choices and personhood, God for some reason allows us to be unlike the animals where we can choose to act and feel like something that isn't what God called us to be. We do have that ability. So we can say and feel things that are in contradiction with what we actually are. But whenever we do that, it's sin. Because it's defying God. To reject our created gender identity is sin. Andrew Walker says it this way. To misunderstand, blur, or reject the creator's categories for humanity doesn't just put us in rebellion against the creator and creation. Listen to this. It puts us at odds with how each of us was made Since God made a very good world with no flaws, and since that world includes humans created as men and humans created as women, to strive to become different than or even the opposite of how God made us can never result in happiness, flourishing, and joy, whatever it promises. To reject our created gender identity is sin. Now, that ought to make us merciful and understanding in a certain way towards those who do that or who feel tempted to do that because we are all sinners. One of the concerns I have for this category for the church and for you younger folks in particular as you get older is that this, this gets into a category of weird and normal. Those are political terms. Those are social terms. Those are not biblical terms. You might look at somebody who feels something really different from you like, I want to be an octopus. And you're like, that's weird. Now, the Bible doesn't work in weird and normal. It works in sin and godliness. The way God made us and the way we want to be in defiance of God. Now, all of us are in the category of sin and defiance. And so we ought to relate to a person who feels a way different than we do in sin with a level of compassion and mercy and humility because I I do that too in my own way. It's not self-righteous. It's not weird and normal. It's sin and godliness. And we're all in the category of sin. We just sin in different ways. But it doesn't change the fact that it is sin to reject our created gender identity. Observation number five. Observation number five. To reject God's design for marriage is sin. 
it's not just how we think of ourselves as a person that matters. It's because God's creation of us as men and women was meant to only have this one particular type of coupling, that that has implications for all other kinds of coupling. You understand what I'm saying? So like, we should think of ourselves the way God made us to be, but then that has implications in who we can marry or relate to romantically. In the Bible, romance isn't this category over here that has some rules and stuff, and then marriage is this category over here, and it has some rules and stuff. No, romance was designed for marriage. That's what Genesis 2 tells us. Genesis 2 makes it clear. The, the, the reason that God made humankind, men and women, is to be a picture of something where two equal things equal in dignity and worth, can walk through a kind of drama where they display a, a difference even as they are united. Even as they are united in humanity. And, and so when we have, for example, people that are not married, that couple together, what that's doing is it's, it's defying the purpose of gender. Gender is meant to display the picture of Christ and the church. Christ as Lord, the church as her, his loving spouse. That's the purpose of marriage. And if we back up, that's the ultimate glory of gender complementarity. If we defy that by coupling differently, coupling with someone who is not our wife, what we're doing is we're undermining God's purpose for romance, which is built off his purpose for gender complementarity. I'm using a lot of big words, but you understand what I'm saying? If we defy God's purpose in marriage in any way, because what God says in Genesis 2 was, that the man shall see the woman, he shall hold fast, and all that that means, to his wife, the two shall become one, and that is very good. Anything else? Coupling with many different people? coupling with the same gender, those are defiance of God's purpose that's based on this idea of a man and a woman that come together in marriage and paint a glorious, very good picture of two things becoming one permanently and irrevocably. We live in a broken world where everybody's looking for ways to defy God, and you can see how divorces that are unbiblical and unbiblical intimacy between young people and old people alike and and boys marrying boys and girls marrying but all of that is just built on this idea that satan's shouting what you feel is what is real so i feel like i don't want to be married to this person anymore therefore what is real is i'm going to get a divorce I feel like I like this person who is not my wife, and I don't want to be one with them forever, but, but I want to be coupled with them temporarily, and what I feel is what is real, and so I'll do that. I, I feel like I, I, I like the idea of being married to someone of the same gender as me, and what I feel is what is real, so I'm going to do that, and nobody can tell me otherwise. Over and over and over again, nobody tell me different what I feel is what is real as it relates to marriage and romance and gender. The Bible says you are capable of doing that, but when you do, you are defying God. You are telling God no. 
This world is full of people that tell God no. It shocks us at the mercy of God. It ought to shock us. When you think about the number of times that one tweet or one comment or one action or one relationship was ultimately saying no to God. What I feel is what is real. No. To reject God's design for marriage is sin. Observation number six, last two quickly. To be dishonest or arrogant towards someone about the truth is sin. To be dishonest or arrogant towards someone about the truth is sin. This might not be something that you personally struggle with, that you personally deal with, but Christians, and especially you guys that are in high school right now, you are absolutely going to face this temptation. Here's how the megaphone works. Listen, even if you're not into what they're doing, you need to applaud what they're doing. You need to tell them that what they're doing is fine and good and all God cares about is you being an authentic feeling person. That is a lie. And if you affirm that lie, you are then sinning. Actually, Romans 1 makes that point. It condemns not only those who do evil things, and specifically the context there is related to gender things, gender defiance kinds of things. And he says, not, not only do this, the sinful world, do they do them, but they give approval to those who do them. So it condemns both. It condemns the person doing these things, and it also condemns the person tweeting thumbs up. Way to go. You be you. Do what you feel. Don't let anybody tell you who you are. Condemned. It condemns those who do things that defy gender. It condemns those who approve of things. And, and here's the reality. That means you're going to have to tell the truth. And your voice is going to seem awful small compared to that megaphone they've been listening to all day long. You're going to seem like one lonely little voice in the midst of a shouting crowd that says, God made them male and female. Now, I can tell you that as long as I'm alive, as long as Mike's alive, by the grace of God and Walt and Bill, we are there with you. And you have young people all around this country and now around the world, at least in our family of churches, and I know there are others as well, but at least in our family of churches, that we are standing with you as well. Now, we're not a very big crowd, and we can't shout real loud, but we can shout as loud as we can, and we are with you. And when we die and go to be with the Lord, which probably will be before all of you die, we will still be cheering you on because you'll still be facing this. And you'll have to be the one that says, that's not true. That's not real. That's not what God says. And if you don't say that, and be careful, or if you are arrogant towards those who do say that as if somehow they need grace more than you do, you will be sinning. Don't do that. Be humble and courageous about gender identity. Be humble and courageous about gender identity. Not humble and fearful and not arrogant and courageous. Be humble and courageous and say, here's the way God made the world. Here's the way God made men and women. And it is very good 
It is very good in God's design, full of joy and pleasure and happiness and commitment and love. It is very, very good, and sin breaks it down, and Satan shouts the opposite, but we will stand, me against a crowd, and say, I agree with God. It is very good. Last observation. To embrace God's redemption about gender and live for him is freedom. To embrace God's redemption and live for him is freedom. What we have described here in Genesis 1 and 2 gets ripped to shreds in Genesis 3. You know the story. Satan comes in. He questions God's character. He questions God's goodness. He urges Eve to defy God and try to be like God, equal to God, instead of just imitating God. And she follows that bullhorn lie, and that first lie leads to a disaster across the world where lie after lie after lie is accepted and received and people live what I feel is what is real what I feel is what is real and they follow that snake right into damnation but then Jesus comes as the great serpent crusher and the image of God and he crushes that snake by dying on the cross for gender defying people that's what Paul calls Christians he says all these evil things you see in the world such were you Such were you. And yet Jesus died on the cross. You know, Jesus, part of what he paid for were people that are now Christians that once were defying God about all manner of gender immorality. There will be people like that in heaven and singing the songs of the Lamb with us. And whether that's you personally right now, whether you are tempted to defy God about the purpose of gender, You might do that in immoral temptations or looks or likes. You might do that in some feeling that you have that draws you in a a sinful way that defies God's purpose for you. You might do that in affirming or refusing to be courageous in defying this bullhorn that Satan has in our ear and standing on God's truth. You're probably at some level doing that in your life in some way right now. Every single person in this room in some way is defying God's purpose for gender. God's identity of who we are, but Jesus Christ died on the cross for gender-defying sinners. Jesus Christ died on the cross for gender-defying sinners, and because he paid for their gender-defying sin, they now have his righteousness covering them, and, and in his victory, they can shout back at that bullhorn because he disarmed the powers of that bullhorn-wielding snake and crushed and conquered him by rising from the dead. And now in his name, we can stand up and say, yes, yes, I stand on God's truth in the name of Christ. And I live in the freedom of being belonging to him and being what God created me to be. Returning to what God created me to be. And we'll still feel things that are wrong until he makes us new. But we can fight those feelings in the name and power of Jesus. And if we've been feeling that way or giving into that way or affirming that way, we can repent and lay claim on his forgiveness and live now going forward as courageous ambassadors for Christ until he makes us perfect and like him where all of our feelings will always, always. It's one of the things I'm most excited for about heaven. Every feeling I have, every desire, at all times, without exception, will always line up perfectly 
with Jesus Christ. Until that day, we fight in his name. We say, God made them. Men and women. And the only time they come together is in the glorious institution of marriage. And for the glory of God, I stand unafraid of that bullhorn. And I say, God made me. And he made me either a man or a woman. And he made that very clear. And now, by the grace of God and in the redemption of Jesus Christ, I will stand for that truth until that great man returns and brings us home. Let's pray. This message was recorded during a conference for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. You've been listening to a conference given for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.